Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning. Hey, well, first things first, can you guys hear me okay? All right, all right, I apologize for the technical difficulties. We actually have some amazing sound techs upstairs working on this, but for some reason my normal pack wouldn't work this morning. And uh, if you had a lead pastor who didn't have issues and was normal, they would just give me a handheld and I'd be fine, but I can't talk without my hands. So I, I hope you understand that. And uh, I, I just, I just want to thank, in fact, would you thank the guys upstairs? They learned this about, yeah, um, they learned this about 15 minutes, well, when I did, about 15 minutes before the service, and I'm like, what's wrong with the pack? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You know, it's all those kind of things. And so they're, uh, they're, they're working hard getting that done, and I appreciate the fact. Hopefully, those of you who are watching online can hear me as well. My name's Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to ask you if you have a copy of God's Word to join me in 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, while you're turning, let me call your attention back to what one of our deacons, Tim Cook, mentioned at the outset of our time together, uh, and that's these blue cards. Just let us know how we can help you, how we can pray for you. This is the best way to stay connected with us. We don't try to sell you anything or pressure you into anything, but it allows us the ease of connection, and if you could do that for us, drop it in the offering plate when it passes at the end of the service. That would be great. And I promise, because I know I'm working, I know this thing's supposed to be omnidirectional. I also know it probably fades when I move over here. I'm going to do my best to stay put. Y'all pray for me this morning. Uh, we, we are spending the weeks leading up to the Christmas season in this series called Non-Anxious Presence. And there's a couple of things we're learning. Number one is that uh, contrary to what a lot of people sort of reflexively think about anxiety, that it's just a problem that needs to be solved. And, and if I could dismiss it or somehow just have it go away, everything would be fine. We're learning that, that this really, rather than exclusively being a problem, is something that is to be leveraged for your growth and for the glory of God. When I feel anxiety, that's not just something I need to get rid of. That's something I need to move through. I need to process through that. I need to do it in a way that makes me better on the other side of it. And, and here's the other thing that we're learning. You can replicate what that looks like to a world that, can we just admit, is filled with angst at this moment. Is it not? It is just filled with all kinds of anxiety. Here's what we're going to learn from Paul today. It's going to be a hard lesson, but it's going to be a worthy one. We don't get there by the things we gain. We get there by the things we lose. We get there by the things that, that we might be willing to give up. Now, that may sound like bad news at first, but let me tell you why that's not true. Here's the main point Paul's going to make in this passage. You ready for this? Take a deep breath. It's going to hurt a little bit, but if you'll push through this with me, it will set you free. God does not need anything you're worried about losing to accomplish his purposes in you. He doesn't need anything. Whatever it is that you're, you're concerned about right now. And I say that because a lot of what causes anxiety is a fear of loss, isn't it? I don't want to lose something. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a loss of my health, a loss of money, loss of control over my life, loss of understanding over the world and how it works, which has kind of been, we've kind of fell victim, all of us, to that, haven't we? 
And, and so before we know it, you've so attached all of those things to your core identity that they constantly fill you with angst. And, and so here's what we're going to learn from Paul today. Your identity and mine is more than your anxiety. God doesn't need the things, even that are strengths in your life right now, to stay strengths. He works most powerfully, in fact, in weakness. Your weakness and mine jump starts a non-anxious. And there's really not a better place to find that than in, in 2 Corinthians. Now, a little bit of history behind this letter. It says in your Bible, 2 Corinthians, but based on what we read in both 1 and 2 Corinthians, based on some just a little bit of mirror reading and some, some basic deduction, this is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to this church. It's the fourth one. There are two, there was, a, there was an actual 1 Corinthians, and then there's what we have, which is probably more like 2 Corinthians, and then there was a third one, and that first and third one, we don't know what happened to them. They've been lost to history. Apparently, the Holy Spirit had no ultimate use for them in the canon of Scripture any longer, so we don't have them. This one was written in the mid-50s, 55, 56 A.D. from Macedonia, and, and kind of like its cousin in 1 Corinthians, it's a response letter. Paul is responding to some things, and in this case, like in the first letter that we have, he's responding to all their questions about Christian faith. They're coming into Christian faith from a, a almost completely non-faith, or at least a non-monotheistic background. They're coming from a pagan background. They have no idea that this is going to affect the way they spend their money, the way they govern their sex lives, what, what their marriage and family is going to look like. All of life now has to get transformed, and 1 Corinthians really is about that, Paul telling that church this is what you need to do. This is how you live. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, he's dealing with a complicated history that apparently he already has with this church. There have been opponents to his ministry, and they've come into the church, and they've challenged his authority and his apostleship. And Paul does something that anybody in my line of work should learn from here. How many of you have this really, really hard time when someone comes against you, when someone opposes you at work or in your family or whatever? Thanksgiving's coming. Ain't y'all looking forward to that family drama? Right. It's a, they're, they're coming against you. And how heavy is the temptation to just fire back? In a position like mine, if you have to make a hard decision and really about 99% of the people that you lead have no idea what's really going on behind the scenes, when there's really that temptation for you to stand up in a position like this or shoot a YouTube video or whatever and, and try to convince your people why those people that oppose you are wrong and you're the one in the right, Paul actually doesn't do that at all. He, I mean, he says, hey, I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm doing here. But you know what he does? Rather than make this a tit-for-tat with his opponents, he uses the conflict and the antagonism to point the church toward a larger lesson about the role of suffering. How spiritually mature is that? How non-anxious is that? And Paul, Paul at this point is the poster boy for suffering in this ministry. Verse 10, in fact, contains this laundry list of things that he has endured, and we're going to look at those things shortly. But Paul tells the Corinthian church that this suffering is God's sanctifying, empowering instrument in his life. And in fact, it is so much so that it is the mitigating force in a ministry of his that is otherwise filled with revelations and visions and the rapid advance of the gospel and planting new churches. Basically, what he's saying is here, God is giving me this suffering to keep me from getting the big head. Or as I used to say, or people used to say where I grew up, God's putting me through this in the midst and against the backdrop of the successes that I'm experiencing to keep me to get from getting too big for my britches. 
All right, that's what he's wanting to do. And so in order to do that, he says, it was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, all gallons of ink's been spilled about what this thing was. We don't know what it was. Something identified. It was very painful in some way. It came from Satan initially. But ultimately, Paul says, this is God's gift of sovereign goodness. God's goodness in this situation permitted the thorn, permitted the torment. And Paul, because, well, he's normal, asked for it to be removed. You can look at your neighbor and say, it's okay to, add, to not want to suffer. <laughs> it really is. It's okay. He asked him, in fact, three different times. And God responds by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that on surface level, that sounds pretty trite to me. It, it really does. We're, we're going to look at that in a minute to, to see it's actually a lot deeper than what it appears to be. But this also isn't the first time we see the Lord saying no to a request like this. Luke chapter 22 is, is one of those texts that always grabs me every time I read it. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked my permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. If I'm Peter, I'm like, I'm thankful for the prayer. You, you told him no, right? Like, you, you told him he couldn't touch me, right? That's actually not what he says at all. Peter, kind of like you, kind of like me, doesn't want to suffer. Paul, kind of like you, kind of like me, doesn't want to suffer. But the Lord's no here is where Paul's non-anxious presence is found. And he discovers three things about his Savior that I want you to see here. That God's grace is enough, that God's power sustains, and God's presence satisfies. You get those three things, you will learn. I will learn. We don't need another thing. In fact, we don't even need what we currently have, whatever it is I'm worried about losing. Let's take these in turn, starting with his grace is enough. And let's look again at this phrase, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, when Paul writes these words, he's doing it retrospectively. There's been a little bit of history between him and, and this event. How many of y'all had that experience? Like when it's going on, this is not a time, right? This is not a time to reason with me. I want this to stop, okay? I want it to stop. Then I get a little history between me and the event. I look back on the event. I see it a lot more clearly. Tell me I'm not the only one. You ever been there? Yeah. And, and so that's what's happening here. I had a dear friend of mine. In fact, he was one of my mentors in ministry. And about 10 years ago, he called me to tell me he'd been terminated from the denominational entity that he worked for. And he was a good soldier. He wasn't gossiping or slandering or anything like that. He didn't, but, but he did think this is wrong and I'm being done wrong and I don't think I deserve this. And he, he, but he, he, did, he just told me, he said, look, I just, I just need you to pray for me, which I was happy to do. And it was about 18 months later when I talked to him and I said, I said, brother, how you doing? He said, I'm doing fine. Here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm serving. Everything's cool. And I said, okay. Okay, I'm glad you're doing well. He said, I am doing well. You know, Joel, it took me about six months of history to realize I deserve to get fired. What's the difference? History, right? You get a little bit of history between you and the event. You get a little bit of distance there. That after the fact, we look back on a trying time or a moment of suffering, and it makes a little bit more sense. And then another year makes a little more sense. But when we're going through these moments, we want them to pass. We want to call out to the Lord just like Paul did, remove this, change this. And I, I want you to hear two things from me this morning. Number one, that's okay. If you want him to remove the suffering, ask him to remove the suffering. He's your father. That's okay. 
Now, here's the bad news. You ready for this? He may not remove the suffering because he's your father, because he loves you, all right? How many of you, your kids did something dumb, and rather than, I mean, at some point, honestly, at all stages of life, they tend to do dumb things, don't they? And sometimes we go bail them out because the consequences are going to be too much, and sometimes a good parent just lets it ride, don't they? Why? Because, because something's got to be taught here, all right? Our Father knows better than we what will be the best choice for us long term. And because of his love, he chooses the best for us, even if it hurts in the moment. And what Paul discovered is, you know, in that moment, his grace is enough. God doesn't just say no. When he says no, he doesn't merely say no. He reminds us of something. My grace is sufficient for you. And I promised you that was weighty, so let me, let me delve into this a little bit. Because, again, I, I look at this first time, I, my grace is weighty. That sounds like you'll get over it, doesn't it? You feel that way? Does it sound kind of trite? Like, you'll be fine. Rub some dirt in it, boy. You'll be fine. Right? It, it's okay. Is, is there bones sticking out? Yeah, I don't want to hear it. Right? That, that kind of, it does. Sometimes we read too quickly, and it comes across like that. But this word grace all by itself tells us that, that what we have is what we will always have regardless of what we will lose. And so he's saying to Paul, and and through Paul, he's saying to you and me in our most anxiety-filled moments, the unmerited favor that I have provided for you in the person and the work of Jesus is enough for you. You have an eternally righteous standing before me because of Christ. You have my sanctifying presence because of Christ. You have my assurance of eventual and total victory because of Christ. You don't need the trouble or the pain taken away in this moment. You need Christ to remain, and you have this promise from me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what it means when it says his grace is enough. His grace is enough. How many times is your spouse or your children or somebody, or maybe you, leaning into a parent or a spouse, and all you really needed was their presence? It brought you comfort. God says, I'll always be there. So every time we encounter trouble or pain or, or uncertainty, and including some of these awful times of angst that so many of us have experienced and continue to experience over about the last 30 months or so, the temptation is to focus on what we don't have anymore, isn't it? The world that we knew in 2019 that is now pretty much gone. And it's been replaced by a gray zone. How many of y'all remember that phrase from two weeks ago? We are living in a moment defined by a lack of clarity, a lack of certainty, and a lack of predictability. Does that sound about right? That's where we live right now. So many things, not that everything is, is, is independable, but, but there are so many things that were once just taken for granted that now we wonder if it can even happen. Last night, we couldn't even find gluten-free Nilla wafers for Thanksgiving. <laughs> kind of a small thing, really. But in a larger context, you're like, man, there were so many things that we just kind of went shopping for a dishwasher yesterday. We went shopping for a lot yesterday. And you know, you know this phrase that came up? Everywhere we went, supply chain. Yeah. It's like, man, all the things that we once counted on. Here's what God is telling you through words like this. You don't need normal to come back. Here's what you need to know. You need to remember that you have me and I never left. I've always been here. But you know what? It's deeper than that still. 
Because grace, that word describes God's ever-present ability and sufficiency in our lives. So every time we encounter trouble, we need to ask ourselves this really simple question. Is Jesus really enough? Do I really believe Jesus is enough? Is he enough for me? And, and then we need to answer with what grace means for us. And there's no way I could improve on Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired words in Romans 8. So let's just read these and meditate on them, beginning in verse 31. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let me go ahead and insert at this point. You'll never know for sure whether that's true unless you experience some of those things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the... The words of Paul to Corinth were written about a year before these words we just read in Romans. And so he's telling the Roman church, when I said to Corinth, his grace is sufficient, this is what I mean by that. My grace is sufficient. God really doesn't need that thing that I'm afraid of losing in order to accomplish his purposes in me. Whatever it is. When you and I ask like Paul, because we're normal, can you take this away? Can you bring the normal back? He never, when he says no, merely says no. What he does say is, you have something better. I know you think that's missing from your resource kit. You need to check that kit again. You've got something in there that's better. You have my grace. When will Jesus be enough for us? That's the question. When will it be enough? Non-anxious presence becomes our reality when we can let go of everything else in our lives except the one person whose unmerited favor and love is going to be yours and mine for the rest of eternity. His grace is sufficient. And secondly, because of that, his power sustains. He goes on in verse 9 to say, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That sounds kind of weird to me. Are you good at that? No, I stink at it. You wouldn't believe how badly I stink at this. It's amazing, actually. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, so let's put this in context. Paul actually had plenty of strengths. Okay, Sometimes we're tempted to um, look at a passage like this and think, okay, well, then what that is is we just need to be as bad as we could possibly be. And it'll be okay. Now, there's that old saying, let's make a joyful noise. The Lord never said anything about having it having to be in tune. And that's true. He didn't. But, but if you're going to lead people, it might help if you could carry a tune, right? And if you can't, that doesn't make you a bad person. 
But it also doesn't make you someone who could use it. Well, that's my weakness, so let me get up on stage and just let that weakness be known to everybody. That, that's not what Paul's talking about here, okay? Let's just stink something awful so that God will... No, no, that, that God gifts people. Paul had a PhD in Old Testament. Paul was a theologian. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul leveraged any and all of those things throughout his life to accomplish the gospel, okay? So my, my friend Mike Crawford calls this spiritual bypass, right? When we don't perform well or we think maybe, well, we're just not going to do our best or we're going to do something we're not really good at because we really want to do it. And, and the spiritual bypass comes out in this way. Well, you know, the Lord just appreciates the effort. Well, he does, but you know what? If there's somebody that can do that better, why don't you let them do it? Paul's not saying I boast in everything that I'm weak in. He's not saying I'm worthless, I'm unqualified. He's a very self-aware person. He can look honestly at himself. This statement is the evidence, though, that Paul also knew better than to ground his entire identity in any of those things in anything but Jesus. Paul recognized that the sole purpose of his existence was inextricably connected to Jesus, and that brings him to the, the following non-anxious conclusion. God's own power applied to my lack of strength in a moment makes perfect, means it brings to a completed end that power. That's another way of saying God's power and glory, which are the sum total of my existence, are seen in their fullest when I am at my weakest. That's what he says. He's not saying don't try hard. He's not saying don't work on your talents. He's not saying don't be committed to excellence. He is saying you're not good at anything, at everything. And there are going to be times when you're going to be in situations beyond your control. And when you are, God's power is seen at its fullest in that moment. I mean, that, that really is what makes Christian faith stand out, if you think about it. But it's difficult. Because if you think about the, what we've done to that, particularly in the West... I'll talk about this in just a moment, but, but one, of the, one of the reasons that, that our, our culture is so anxious right now is because the entire fulcrum of Western civilization has been built on strength, and, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but, but we've gotten so accustomed to that and so used to that that even in the church, we think we've always got to project strength, and that comes out in a, a number of ways. One of the ways I've noticed over about the last 30 years is, is we like to put our success stories on the stage and keep our failures in the closet, right? I, my wife ran the book tables for two of Billy Graham's crusades when we were younger. And, and again, Billy Graham did amazing stuff. This is not knocking him at all. But, but there was a pattern that I noticed. The people that he would have come up and give a testimony, yeah, you remember some, who some of these people were? Yeah, like Winston Cup or Nextel Cup, or what is it even now? I don't even know. They keep changing it on me, right? NASCAR champions, Super Bowl champions, successful businessmen that have made tens of millions of dollars. I'm like, you know, the Graham organization never one single time put a guy up there that couldn't make his rent. Why is that? Why is that exactly? Have we placed so much emphasis on human success that the focus of Christianity in the West has now become human achievement rather than the glory of God? And if it has, 
I don't know, I'm not the prophet or the son of a prophet, but I think it's worth asking whether some of the chaos we've been thrown into has not been initiated by a sovereign God because he's tired of that. He's done with people who talk about nothing but winning. Because meanwhile, I mean, there's all kinds of damage that does to the Christian gospel, but let's, let's think just for a moment. I mean, our heavenly, y'all, y'all remember when Kanye got saved? It's okay to thank God that Kanye got saved, but I'm going to tell you, when you take somebody famous like that and you put them on a pedestal the way we did and everybody's, oh, look at Kanye, look at Kanye, and now we've got to deal with his anti-Semitism. This is what happens when we only put what, in our view, are success stories. You put the NASCAR champion up, and then two months later you've got to deal with the affair he was having while he was standing on the stage because we didn't look at character. We look at what's he accomplished, what's he got done. How does it look rather than how is it? All right, this is what he's talking about here. You would rather have somebody up there who's struggling. You go, well, that's not a good model of Christianity. Well, what does it communicate even to our own brothers and sisters when the only testimonies we parade are success stories? What, what does that communicate to people in this family with mental illness? What does it communicate to people with financial struggles? What does it communicate to people with honest-to-goodness problems that don't ever seem to have a solution? I'll tell you what it communicates to them. Well, you must have some kind of sin in your life, and you better go figure out what that is. You're not doing something right. Brothers and sisters, that is a prosperity gospel that is damnable. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It uses Jesus to point to my success. That's not what we want here. Now, if you're a success, God bless you. Okay, I, I will preach messages like this sometimes and have people come up to me and go, well, well, should I be poor? No. No, that's just a, that's prosperity gospel in reverse. That's poverty gospel. You know, both of them are exactly the same. They index your righteousness to how much is in your wallet. That's what they do. So no, if you're making a lot of money, make a lot of money. Make a truckload of money. God bless you in that. Enjoy your life. Experience pleasure. Feel safe and secure. Keep a sense of control over your life if you can, unless those things produce within you a fear that you might one day lose them, and then that begins to ratchet up the anxiety to a point that you can't serve the Lord anymore. If that's the case, then you're only living for Jesus when things are going well for you. And I've just got a really honest question for you. How does that make you different from any other person who's a non-Christian in the world? How does it make us different? We are, as you know, at ground zero of the national opioid addiction crisis. And so many of those stories, I had no idea. God opened my eyes when we came to the panhandle about the reality of addiction and how so many of those stories started not on a street corner with somebody trying to do illicit, something illicit, started in a hospital with a back surgery or something along those lines. And a patient, uh, they, they needed the pain to go away. But then all of a sudden, that, that became the number one goal. When a patient's number one goal is pain management, they likely as not never are actually healed. Did you know that? Yeah, when you take pain meds, and again, you may need to take pain meds. If it becomes unbearable, thank God for that. That's a gift of common grace. 
But if avoiding pain becomes the primary goal, you will never, ever heal. In fact, you'll just get worse. That's true medically. That's true spiritually. And that's what a lot of people do with their faith. And that's why they wonder, why is my faith not helping me? All right? Because it, it's, it, it's not real. It's just there to mask the pain and the anxiety. That's why when a lot of those things start to crumble and the image gets removed, a lot of people just... Just walk away. Paul knew that when everything else in life crumbles and vanishes, that's when others can see most clearly what kind of foundation you're really standing on. You're going to know then. And he says, God's power is seen most clearly through me when I am weak. And as a result, I will, with great pleasure, boast in my weaknesses. Now, he's not saying I'm going to boast about being weak. He says, I'm boasting even as I am weak. This isn't some delusional denial of reality. This is somebody standing in a hard reality and recognizing it and saying, you know what? I can still have joy. I can still take pleasure in my existence now. I don't have to wait till it gets better because I have Christ and I have him now, even if I'm weak. You know, Hebrews 4 and verse 16 compels us to come boldly to the throne of grace now when I suffer, when I don't feel adequate to the moment i can know that god's power is working at the maximum level in me even as i am weak but this is unusual isn't it to choose pain it's hard it's hard but you know what you're doing it, who, who works out regularly in here I, I just i can actually put my hand up i just recently started again about two weeks ago <laughs> our old i did i well, y'all laugh at me. I'm serious. Like, I, our oldest son just moved out. I was, you know, he, he was down to baby. That's where my elliptical was. And so I was trying to, you know, respect his privacy. He's gone. And, and so I'm, I'm on that thing three times a week. Probably should be on it five times a week, but that's another subject for another day. And, and, then, I, and then I lift weights down there, free weights. I lift weights because I'm 50 years old. And, and lifting free weights will keep you from catching furniture disease. <laughs> Y'all know what furniture disease is, don't you? It's when your chest falls into your drawers, just in case you didn't know, right? And so I'm, I, I'm looking at what? Troy, maybe it's better with this mic. I don't know. Um, it, it's all right. So I've, I've started working. What am I doing when I go down there? Especially when I, when, I, when I pick up that barbell and I start doing this. I'm choosing pain. You know why? Because it's how I get better. And what's true of me physically, what's true of you medically, it, it, you spend your whole life trying to do nothing but avoid pain and look good. You're never going to grow. Never going to happen. Okay? You never really know the true measure of your faith if you never suffer. That's why suffering is a key part of the process of being a disciple of Jesus. And if that surprises you, it's just because the Western church, by and large, has completely left that part of the Bible out when it comes to our preaching. We have a woefully underdeveloped theology of suffering. It is why we were so woefully unprepared and failed so miserably as a body of Christ during the pandemic. 
because we don't know what we we don't want to do that. We've been taught even subconsciously you you avoid that. You come to come to Jesus to get the feels, right? No, I come to Jesus to get eternal life, and I come to Jesus to become more like Jesus. And here's what I learned: God's sustaining grace is seen most clearly and most powerfully when life is at its most difficult. And some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Because you've been through things your pastor hadn't been through and I and, and can't identify with. But you could stand up here and probably preach this better than I could because you've been there and I've seen it. And I, I want to give you some encouragement this morning if that's you. I'm not the only one that's seen it. Your brothers and sisters have watched you suffer. Your brothers and sisters have watched you stay faithful to Jesus. Your brothers and sisters have seen you lean wholly and completely on him. Your brothers and sisters have seen you come to the realization that if I never get this back, he is sufficient. His grace is enough. His power sustains. And, and here's the reason for all that. We find it in verse 10. It, it's because his presence satisfies. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Now, that, this is the most insane, like craziest sentence I've ever read. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Really? Think about that. And, and then he says this, for when I am weak, I am strong. The whole reason, and I have to recognize, the whole reason I'm repelling against that is because I've been raised in a culture that has all kinds of redeeming qualities to it that I'm incredibly thankful for, but that is also predicated on this idea of success. Mark Sayers, the, Sayers, the, the Australian pastor who wrote the book by the same name as the series, Non-Anxious Presence, says this is in the West known as the myth of the frontier. You remember those stories about the cowboys, the maverick gold hunters and explorers? I love those stories. How many of y'all, like the pastor, you love a good John Wayne movie still? Uh, I, yeah, I'm there, right? And those are the stories. Those aren't wrong. Those are, you know, archetype heroes. Many of them are real. And their accomplishments are amazing. They conquered the West. They ushered in the industrial age. They sent us into space. And every bit of that was fueled by a rugged individualism that conquers and controls. But now we've arrived at this new moment where we don't know exactly what's coming next. And that, that uncertainty is against the backdrop of what historians call the end of the American century. Not the end of America, but, but a new era is coming. We don't know what that's going to look like. But we do know that for all intents and purposes, it's going to include things like the rise of China and the rapid increase of globalization. It just doesn't feel like it did, does it? That's not good. That's not bad. That's just the, the state of the world we're in right now. And here's Sailor's point. Sailor's point. As commendable as all these things are, you and I are not saved by conquering the frontier. Right? You get back to the gospel. We're not saved by that. In fact, the frontier is not even the, supposed to be the thing that gives you purpose as a human being. If you don't believe me, let's just look back at verse 10. Paul, contrast that with Paul's description here. In, in the middle of five unpleasant things, okay, weaknesses, which just simply means the inability to escape one's circumstances. I'm in the middle of something here, and I can't do anything about it. You been there? That's, that's what he's describing as a weakness. Insults, hubris of the world, prideful people, 
who look down on you in disgust. I got news for you. Those people will always exist. Pay them no mind. There will always be somebody who thinks differently than you do, who thinks because you think the way you think or because you're in a different socioeconomic category or you're a different ethnicity or you're a different gender. That they're, they're just, they're just going to do that kind of thing. They're going to look down on you. And what you don't want to do is raise your own anxiety by responding to that with what social scientists call meta-perception. Now I spend all my time thinking about what you think about me. That's called you living rent-free in my head. That's what that's called. All right? Insults, hubris, hardships. That's the third thing. Hardships, distress that comes in you and into your life, and it just keeps coming into your life. Like you, you fall up, all right, I dodged, I dodged that punch. I come up, and, and here's another one. Like, what's happening? Can I get a break? Persecutions, people taking aim at me to intentionally harm me or to drive me away. And then all of that produces this fifth category, calamities which just means to be in a narrow place, literally the rock and a hard place, right? This is, this is where I'm at. I'm in an impossible situation where there doesn't seem to be a solution. Paul says, I'm in the middle of every one of those right now. I'm five for five and I'm content. With all that defining on in his reality, how can he say that? This way. He says, on behalf of and for the sake of and as an agent of Jesus Christ, even as these things have made me weak, I am powerful in the middle of it all and here's what Paul understood the kind of anxiety that he's talking about here isn't caused primarily by difficult circumstances anxiety comes from a disconnection from the palpable presence of God that's right because because look even if things are going great if you're depending on those things then you, you had to walk away from the Lord to be dependent on that more so than you were dependent on him. And so now you're worried about what? Losing all this. Losing every bit of this. That's what Paul understood here. And again, I'm not saying that if you're anxious that it's, that, that it's necessarily because you're in sin or you're unspiritual. I mentioned this last couple of weeks ago. There are bona fide anxiety disorders. We need to treat medical problems like medical problems. Furthermore, you may not always feel the presence of God, even if you search for it. The Puritans referred to that as the, the dark night of the soul. So, so I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. This is not a pray it away message. But here's what I am saying. Your anxiety will not be relieved by a mere change in your circumstances. As you talk to your therapist, you seek help, you keep searching, the place to focus is not on the absence of the things Paul mentions here, but the presence of God. To be able to say with David in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And right, You're all I've got left, in other words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my life and my portion forever. Ultimate satisfaction, immeasurable power is found in his presence. His grace is enough, his power sustains, and his presence satisfies. I, I don't know how many of you know the name Henrietta Myers. Probably very few of you. Let me tell you a story about Henrietta Myers. She was born in 1890 in North Dakota. 
How's that for obscure? Most people don't even know there is a North Dakota. But Henrietta Myers wrote a book that sold three million copies. Came out in 1953 called What the Bible is All About. Now, early in her life, she started suffering. She was born into a family that had lost all of their wealth by the time she was 13 years old. Her mother died by the time she was 20, and by the time she was 30, she was declared legally blind. Those are a few hurdles, don't you think? She didn't let any of that stop her. She went on to be a teacher. All right, We got a few educators in front of me. Got a few more coming to the 11 o'clock. Let me tell you what this educator did, how she leveraged her educational expertise for the kingdom of God. In 1915, while a member at the First Baptist Church of Minneapolis, Minnesota, she took the educational standards that she had learned as a teacher and she applied them to the Sunday school system. And to this day, our children's leaders back here still use that, those processes. Because the church learned something from common grace through those educational standards. She would later do similar work at the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California, where at its largest, she would teach a Sunday school class of over 4,000 people. Not a church, a Sunday school class. Her influence brought her to disciple some people. You may not know Henrietta Myers, but you might know Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. I know most of you know the name Billy Graham that she influenced and discipled. More than a few people in this congregation, because of the family connection, know the name of Richard Halverson, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Every one of those people raised up, discipled by Henrietta Myers. Toward the end of her life, she said this, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight. I just came back from the eye doctor. And I'm starting to hear things from my optometrist that I see every year that aren't anywhere near like this. Don't freak out. It's cool. I'm good. Retina looks good. Pressure's good. Everything's good. All right? But, but, I, but really for about the last five years, I've been hearing this on my, my, week, my, my annual trip to the optometrist. That, well, you know, for a man your age. <laughs> and, and, it, and it upsets me. It, it upsets me. And I've noted, like, I can't see in a little eye. I use, I, y'all think, when I first came here, you said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't use a paper Bible, I use an iPad. And some people thought, oh, he's just trying to be hip and cool. No, it's because I can't see. I need backlighting for that. This woman said, my greatest asset in my service to the kingdom of God is my blindness. How does she say something like that? For it has kept me absolutely dependent on God. Billy Graham, Richard Halverson, Bill Bright came out of that. When she was weak, she was strong. Brother, sister, you don't need anything to change. You don't need anything to get better. In fact, you, you don't even need what you currently have to stay in place. To be faithful to Jesus and be used powerfully 
by him. R. Kent Hughes calls this the paradox of power. Like Paul, when we are weak, we are strong because we, we stand in him. And so if you're here this morning, you're thinking, man, I need this. I've got to get over that. I, look at me. I could, I could never be of use to the kingdom of God. You're exactly who he's looking for. Because it's that place of dependency where his power is most greatly displayed. Grab on to the opportunities he puts in front of you right now. Don't wait on it. Be the non-anxious presence you can be as you depend exclusively on the one who will never leave you, never forsake you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for hard truths communicated in simple ways. Father, I pray for those who are suffering today. Lord, there are people that from the outside, they're just external things coming down on them, and they are weak in the, the essence of what that word means. They're, they're, they're not able to escape the circumstances in which they find themselves. For some of my brothers and sisters here this morning, the conflict is internal. There are things going on. There's a mind always racing that they can't shut off. There's a, a nervousness. And, Father, I just pray your spirit will be with them today. I pray our church family would supply the resources necessary to bring comfort to them. But more than anything else, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would take the pain that you have allowed in our lives in this moment and leverage it for our own growth and for your glory, Father, in a culture that tells us to just pop a pill, take an opiate, dull it out, do away with it, take a vacation, escape from everything. Lord, give us the grace by your Spirit to choose pain. That will lead to growth, not suffering for suffering's sake, not to be tormented merely for the sake of torment, but, Father, people willing to leverage the moment that you've given us and that you've placed us in for your greater glory and for our good. And may we find an intimacy there, and may we find a power there, the very power that Paul talks about. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.